All right, so with, uh, with politics on everyone's mind, so I thought it might be interesting to try to think to myself, what's a good chapter of Tehillim, since we spoke about the idea that, you know, there's really something for every element of experience, there's something that Tehillim has to say about it and help us put it into context. You know, that's really what Tehillim is about. It's about taking our experiences and shaping the way that we respond to our experiences and think about them with the framework of the values of Torah, really, and the framework of the, of the principles of Torah. That's, that's the goal of Tehillim. So whenever a person is experiencing despair or frustration or sadness or anger or happiness, joy, fulfillment, anxiety, any range of, think, uh, of emotion or thought, any type of experience that a person has there, they're overwhelmed by the beauty of nature. There's many Mizmorim in Tehillim that talk about that. Whatever it might be, um, there's something in Tehillim that speaks about that experience and contextualizes it and makes it a religious experience. Because something can just be a fleeting experience or a reflection a person has, but they don't take it to the next step of reflecting on how that connects to their Jewish identity or to the understanding of the world that we're given in the Torah. They just kind of have a fleeting moment of, wow, look at these beautiful mountains or look at this beautiful sunset or I'm feeling sad right now or I'm feeling so happy and thankful right now. But they might not take it to the next level of really reflecting on how to make that a part of their religious life. And I feel like that's what Tehillim is trying to do. It's trying to integrate those experiences with your religious life. And that's why many people turn to it when they're, uh, when they're in a time of distress and they want to pray. You know, they use it as a as a kind of a framework for their tefillah, hopefully they understand what they're saying. Because I think if you don't understand what you're saying, it certainly doesn't have the same impact on you. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's, necess- it's not meaningful in some way. Things can be meaningful even if you don't fully understand what you're doing sometimes. They can give you, uh, they can give you a benefit because you have a general idea of what you're saying and you connect to the concept. But when you understand the words, it definitely makes a difference. So the Mizmor I wanted to talk about uh, to start, and if we have time, I might do another one with you guys if we, if we have time. But um, Kuf Kavzayin, it's on page Resh Lamed Bet. I wish this had like English numbers because sometimes it could be hard to figure out what that is. Um, but most people, uh, if, you, if you go through the, you know, Kuf is 100 and then Resh is, is 200 and Lamed Bet is, is 32. So it's somewhere towards the end of the book. There are only 150 Mizmorim in Tehillim, so if 127, Kuf Kav Zayin is 127, so it's towards the end. It's Kuf Kav Zayin, 127. Yeah. These are the short prakim in the end, towards the end of the book. Yeah. And uh, it's somewhat of a famous one. Uh, I, I knew a rabbi that used to quote this pretty often, and that's why it's stuck in my head for like many decades because of that. But Shira Malot Lishlomo. This is a song of Hama'alot, which I had mentioned previously. We're not 100% sure what Shir Hama'alot means. What it's referring to, is it referring to the steps that the Levi'im stood on when they sang the song? Is it referring to something related to the music of how it was sung? Whatever that might be. But Lishlomo here, the commentaries mainly explain it to mean for King Solomon, for Shlomo. This is one of the only places that we find the name Shlomo mentioned in the book of Tehillim. Okay? Um, mostly it's written by David and Melech or anonymous authors or some other authors that lived during the time of the Bait Rishon. Uh, 
building the first Beit HaMikdash. But um, this one says, Shira Malut Lishlomo, which is interpreted, not that he wrote this, but that it was written for him, or it's a tribute to him, it's dedicated to him, and I think we'll be able to see in a minute why that is, and maybe we'll be able to see why I thought this was meaningful for right now, for whatever what is on everybody's mind now, uh, what's going on in the world. Im Hashem lo yivne bayit, if Hashem does not build a house, shav amilu bonavbo. For nothing are the workers toiling to build it, if Hashem doesn't build it. If Hashem does not protect the city, Shav Shakad Shomer. The guard is guarding for nothing. Shav means waste, means nothing. Means It doesn't mean nothing. It means for nothing, for no purpose. Meaning there's no, uh, there's no purpose achieved by the guarding if Hashem is not guarding. There's no purpose achieved by the building if Hashem is not building it. Okay? That's what, so Shav is like, for example, a Tfilat Shav. Um, an empty prayer is a prayer that doesn't have any meaning because the event has already happened. So the Gemara gives an example, Talmud gives an example, if a person sees an ambulance goes by and they say, oh, I hope that is not going to, Hashem, make it that that's not going to my house. It's too late if it's already going to the person's house. I, we understand why they don't want it to be going to their house, but it's too late. Or if they pray for the gender of the child when the child is already formed in the, in the mother's womb it's like it's too late I mean you're asking for a miracle basically but tefillah shav means that it's a, a tefillah that doesn't have a purpose or shavuat shav if a person swears on something that's already evidently true or evidently not true that's called shavuat shav a person is swearing that this is wood okay it's obviously wood you don't need me to swear Right? It's called, it's a meaningless, it's empty. It doesn't accomplish anything. So I'm swearing just for the sake of swearing. You know, some people just say, I swear all the time. I swear, I swear, I swear. Well, why do you have to swear everything? Just say it. It's okay. Right? So, uh, so people say that all the time, but there's a concept of the when you use Hashem's name for no purpose. Right? When you use Hashem's name for, for no purpose. So what it means, Shav Shakat Shomer, is the person's guarding for nothing. If Hashem is not guarding the city, a person who's standing there guarding is really not going to accomplish anything either. Meaning, it's not fully in your hands what's going to happen. If Hashem is not building the house, then the people who are working on it are working for nothing. Meaning to say that your efforts are very nice and very good. But if Hashem's plan is different than your plan, you're not ultimately going to succeed. Now that can sound a little bit depressing. You know, that can sound a little bit upsetting because it's like, okay, so I invested all of this time and money and effort in building or I'm standing here trying to guard, so what's the point? Why should I bother? It's not saying that a person shouldn't bother to do things. It's saying that if Hashem has a plan contrary to yours, even if you do things, Hashem's plan will still come, uh, will still be the one that is, uh, you know, that takes precedence over whatever you've done. It's not saying that a person doesn't need to act to build a house and they should just wait around to see what house Hashem builds. That's not what it means. Obviously, Hashem is not a contractor. He's not going to build the house. What it means is if Hashem didn't will for that house to be built, then one way or another it's not going to be built. And you can put in all the effort in the world, but if you come up against obstacles that are insurmountable, it might not be meant to be. Okay? There's only so much we can do. And why was this significant? So David Melech was saying this. Ibn Ezra, I saw the commentary. Ibn Ezra says that 
the reason why was because he really wanted to build the Beit HaMikdash. We know the story. David HaMelech, he wanted to build the Beit HaMikdash. He was very excited. Once he had made his capital in Yerushalayim, to build the Beit HaMikdash. And then Navi Natan came to him, one of the prophets of the time, and said, first said, okay, no problem. But then Hashem said, no, 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 I didn't say that it was okay. He can't do it. It has to be Shlomo. He has to be his son. So the Navi came back, the prophet came back to David and said, you're not going to be the one to build the uh, Beit HaMikdash. It's going to be your son. And so that's why David HaMelech says, David HaMelech says here, if Hashem doesn't build the house, it's not going to be built. Meaning you could put all the effort into it, but if it's not God's will, it's not going to be, a, it's not going to be achieved. Just like when the Jewish people on the reverse side said the Beit HaMikdash will never be destroyed. And Hashem said, no, 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 if you do X, Y, and Z, it will be destroyed. I'm telling you, it's going to be destroyed. No, it will not be destroyed. If Hashem is telling you that it's going to be destroyed, it's going to be destroyed. It's, you, 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 you can do everything that you, that you want to try to protect it and try to avoid that consequence. But if the consequence is going to happen, it's going to happen. And if Hashem tells you that, that certain things need to be done, or, can't, or, or that if they're done, the consequence will be uh, a negative one, you're not going to be able to avoid it. And so th- what, what the Mizmor is saying is basically, in a way, David HaMelech is saying, I would have put all of my efforts into this, but if Hashem is telling you this is not going to be built, then what am I, then putting your efforts in is, is a waste of time. Right? That the people who are building it are, are not, uh, not going to accomplish anything. The people who get up early in the morning to work. The person stays late at work. He gets up early. He's eating the, the bread of nervousness, meaning or, or sorrow. In other words, the person lives a stressful life trying to achieve more than he's meant to achieve, trying to get around the obstacles that are in his way. Hashem will give to his beloved one sleep. In other words, the person can be secure, shouldn't have to feel the anxiety that they need to do more in order to achieve what they, you know, in order to secure or to achieve more than it seems reasonable for them to achieve. So a person will go above and beyond, but at the end of the day, what they really need or what they're really meant to accomplish could be much more within their reach than they think. And so a person oftentimes is going beyond when really it's just creating more stress for them. It's really just creating more trouble for them. It's not actually providing them with greater satisfaction because they're trying to do something which is contrary really to what Hashem's will was. Hashem's will is that a person live a good life, a a fulfilled life, and he gives sleep to the one who, that he loves. In other words, he allows you to rest. He doesn't want a person to live a life of constant stress. And somebody who feels that they're always trying to struggle against the world can't really feel a sense of satisfaction in the world. They're always feeling dissatisfied. They're always feeling unhappy. They're always feeling frustrated as they're, they feel like they're grinding against the world instead of living in harmony with the world. And that seems to be like what the theme is that just like you said before you can put all of your effort in but if God doesn't will it you did the best that you can and it's not going to be successful and that's just the way that it is 
And so too, if a person goes out there and they do what they're supposed to do and they live the way that they're supposed to live and they win some and they lose some, it's, uh, they win some and they lose some. So they don't have to lose sleep over the fact that they lose some. But they'll, they'll win other ways. And they'll succeed in other ways. As long as they continue putting in their effort in the direction that they, they believe is correct and that is, that is best for them and they make the choices to the best of their ability that are good, there will be ups and downs. And there's no reason for the person to feel overly anxious or overly worried or stressed or distraught about the situations that don't go exactly the way that they expected to. Because that just reminds you that there's something beyond us that's making decisions and, and, and running the world. And that's okay. And then he says, And he starts talking about children. The inheritance of Hashem is children. Reward is the fruit of the womb. That, again, this is something that comes from God. It's not something that a person can has full control over, whether you're granted children and how many children and what the children will be like. This is something that's really in the hands of God. It's an ultimate example of how the reward of the rewards of life are not a direct consequence of our plans. We can't really plan how our kids are going to be. Now you have family planning. People can determine how many kids they're going to try to have. But even then, it's not exactly in a science because sometimes people can't have as many children as they uh, wanted to have. Or sometimes people have more than they expected to have. You know? And the, you never know what your children are going to come out to be like. You might have a child that comes out to be different than what you expected. Or a child sometimes has... Uh, certain inclinations that you didn't anticipate or certain difficulties or challenges that they have that you weren't expecting or they might be a genius and it's a, actually stressful for parents. They have like a, a child that is, uh, has extraordinary abilities. Whatever it is, you never know. Right? So that really comes from God. And, the, and a person will say that you know one of their greatest satisfactions in life is to raise children and to pass on sort of a piece of themselves to the next generation and transmit their wisdom and their experience and, and what, what good that they have to, to the next generation, just like David HaMelech, we could imagine here, feels that through Shlomo HaMelech, he's going to achieve his dream of building the Beit HaMikdash. He wasn't allowed to build the Beit HaMikdash, but he was able to have his child do that. Really, that's the ultimate example of something that's in the hands of God because he had no control over it. it what child he would be given... Now, obviously, Shlomo was already born because he's saying this is more to Shlomo. He's saying it as a message to Shlomo. You are my gift of God who is going to fulfill this, this uh, dream of building the Beit HaMikdash. It wasn't for me to fulfill. And if it's not for me to fulfill, then no matter what I do, it won't be achieved. So therefore, I'm handing it off to you. But that itself is in the hands of God. And he says, Like arrows in the hand of the mighty person. These are what the children of our youth are like. They're like arrows. Now, what's that metaphor of an arrow? Do you see the metaphor of an arrow? What is an arrow? What's, what's unique about the weapon of an arrow? Now, you have to think back to the ancient times where they didn't have guns. Okay. So what does an arrow have as an advantage over other weapons? Well, hopefully you do, but I mean, if you're good, you know where it's going. It's, from a di- it's action from a distance, basically, right? It's action from a distance because what makes... The, if you've ever seen those like uh, Civil War uh, movies or you know battle ancient battles, are, they have to get very up close and personal to kill each other, like with spears and with swords and all that. And you know it's pretty much like you're gonna have a lot of casualties because you're getting very close to the enemy. It's very it's very hard to 
to defend yourself when you're that close. And so an arrow is great, and you'll see that the Tanakh talks a lot of times about arrows, that, the, oh, this army had a great archers. Why having great archers is so great is because it's like having snipers today. You have people who can shoot from a distance, and when you can shoot from a distance, you hopefully are protected, but you're able to target the enemy effectively. So arrows are something we can do from a distance, or you want to catch a deer. Obviously, if you catch a deer, this way won't be kosher, but they would shoot them with arrows because try chasing a deer, good luck. You're not going to catch it, but you might be able to shoot it with an arrow. It can't run faster than an arrow. So there's an ability to reach beyond your natural, the natural arm's length by using the arrow. Unlike, let's say, a sword where you can only... I mean, you could throw a sword, you could, but that's not the typical way of fighting with a sword. And then you can't get it back if you miss. And you don't have any more. It's not like arrows where you can keep replenishing. So it says here, like arrows in the hands of a mighty person, that's how children are that you have in your youth. Meaning, you raise these children, you have them when you're young, hopefully, relatively young, you raise them, and by the time you're getting older, they are coming into their prime and they are like arrows because they carry forth the direction that you set them on they carry it forth beyond you beyond your uh, you know beyond your direct holding on to them just like an arrow shoots forth fortunate is the person who fills his like ashpato means the thing that you hold the arrows in I'm not sure what you hold that, call that in English but you know whatever you put you know they, they won't be embarrassed when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In other words, people, the, the way that they interpret, it, interpret this is to mean that people would shame David or would look down at David that he didn't accomplish certain things that he set out to do, like building the Beit HaMikdash. People would say, see, we told you, you're such a loser. You thought you were going to build the Beit HaMikdash and Natan told you you're not allowed to build the Beit HaMikdash so obviously you're not such hot stuff as you thought you were. And so he's saying, no, the, the children, a person who fills their quiver, I think might be the word, right? In English, something like that. With, um, with, with arrows is a person, meaning has a lot of children, has a future. So they're not limited. So even if somebody comes and says, oh, you didn't accomplish this or do that or do whatever, yeah, it's for the next generation to accomplish it. I'm, I'm passing it to the next generation. I have a legacy ahead of me, not just what I've accomplished, but what I've set in motion by my children, students, children, whatever it is, who are going to carry it forward and beyond me, beyond my existence. So it gives a person a sense that they can have an impact beyond themselves, beyond the immediate. And that even though there might be certain things that are not within our purview to accomplish, that doesn't mean that we don't have a role in accomplishing them. And I think that's the important thing. Okay? Like, it's not supposed to be depressing, like, oh, well, you're going to die and maybe your kids will do a good thing. It's saying you have a role in accomplishing it. Just like an arrow goes the way that you shoot it, hopefully, if you're a good, arch, you know, if you're a good um, marks person, marks woman or marksman, then you will shoot accurately, okay? But if, you know, the idea is that you play a role in setting that in motion. So let's say a person, like, for example, sometimes you see, like I, I saw recently a yeshiva that the, the Rosh Yeshiva has become older and he's not as well. And the students who were young whippersnappers, we would call them, you know, old guys like me, 
are taking over. And it's pretty incredible to see how these students who were stu- like si- significantly younger than I am, but have absorbed the teaching of the older generation of the rabbis and of the middle generation of the rabbis. And now they're rising up as like the leaders of the institution. And you see how they've taken and like improved upon even like what they received because they're children of a different generation. So they've like when I went to yeshiva, the old, I don't mean this in a negative way, but like the Roshe yeshiva of the olden times taught in a very traditional way. You sat down, you opened the book, you listened, you asked questions and stuff, but you know, it was a, it, they weren't like learning how to, they didn't have like pedagogical method. They didn't learn like how to educate. They weren't, they weren't trained educators, okay? So it was almost like you sat and you learned from them and they talked and you listened and maybe there was some interaction, but it was a very old school model of learning. And maybe they didn't always sit down and say, you know, this is the framework I'm working with. Let me explain to you the foundation here. They just, you just kind of like jumped in to the pool and you're expected to figure out what was going on. The new generation gets, no, 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 that's not how it works. You have to introduce people to what is the method we're using and how do we approach this and what are the basics and what are the foundations and what is the framework and what are the big, what's the big picture that we're operating with and orient them. And then you have to have PowerPoint presentations and you have to have visual aids and you have to have smart boards, whatever. Things that we didn't have when I was a kid. Or even in traditional yeshivot, didn't have, even now I don't think they have smart boards, but you know, there's a little bit more of a sense of maybe um, educational method but what's amazing is seeing how, you know, these earlier teachers and rabbis educated, let's say, two generations. And now I'm seeing like this second, third generation of, who have also absorbed other influences, like even improving the institution that taught them, like making the institution better. So the original generation put them in motion, put that in motion. But the current generation is building upon and improving what they received. And that's what I think part of what this Ms. Moore is talking about. That, because otherwise it doesn't, you know, it's weird because it starts out by talking about building houses and protecting cities. And then it starts about talking about having kids. So what's the connection between, it's weird because in the, the first half is saying like, oh, you know, people that overworked the people that are stressed out, the people that are trying to make ends meet more than, you know, trying to go above and beyond what really is meant to be or what really is, you know, what really would naturally be appropriate for them and be, and be sufficient for them. And they're, they're pushing themselves beyond and that these people are, uh, you know, in a way going against the grain. And they don't realize that Hashem has a plan for them and they should work within that plan instead of trying to, 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 to push back against it. And then he starts talking about having kids and how they're like arrows in the, that you shoot. Then what, what does that have to do with anything? But if you see that the idea is that a person recognizes that there are certain things that are within my uh, control or within my sphere of influence to make a difference. And then there are certain things that aren't. And I accept that, that God's plan is greater than my plan. And the best I can do for those things, for those dreams that I have is to set as much emotion as I can for the future to be able to, my children or 
And even that, it's still in the hands of God, what children we receive and what they'll be able to do and what opportunities they'll have, what strengths and weaknesses they'll have. They're not, uh, it's not in our hands. But we can make an effort to put in motion that process that uh, allows our dreams to be fulfilled in the future. If what we really care about is the good of, you know, ultimately the good of the world and, and, and perfecting God's creation, and we don't only care about our individual existence, and it would make a difference to us. Just like for Moshe Rabbeinu, the fact that the Torah still exists today, Moshe Rabbeinu would be very happy, even though he's not here to see it. But his idea was for the Jewish people to have the Torah and, make the, and perfect the world through learning and teaching and observing the Torah. And that, that's exactly what he wanted to do. That's why we say, Avram Avinu, Hashem is Magen Avraham, he's protector of Avraham. Avraham is dead. What, what, why does Hashem promise Avraham, your children are going to inherit the land and they're going to do all this stuff? What does Avraham care? He's not going to be there. He just wants to enjoy his life and feel that he accomplished something. What, is it, what difference does it make to him? What's going to happen in the future? So the answer is that Avraham Avinu recognizes that you're not just what you accomplish in your lifetime. God's plan, you are this tiny, you know, blip on the radar of God's plan. What came before you made you what you are. And what you do is laying groundwork for what the future is going to be. So you're not just you. That's not your existence is not just the moment that is you on that screen. It's a lot bigger than that. So if you're not able to accomplish and achieve everything that you hope to achieve in your life, that's not because you're not going to play a role in that achievement. It's just a different role than maybe you envisioned that you would have. See? And, that's, and I think that's part of what David is, is saying. Maybe he's saying it to himself, you know? But the, you know, he's saying for Shlomo to understand. Well, it's, why is it Shlomo? Shlomo? It's for Shlomo because it means that it's the way that he looked at the, what Shlomo was going to do. That he wasn't able, David, to accomplish certain things like build the Beit HaMikdash, but Shlomo was going to be able to do it. And he recognized that is partially his accomplishment. That's partially his blessing. Nachalat Hashem. It's the inheritance given to him by God that he has children. And when people criticize him, he says, that now I can speak to my enemies in the gate. Meaning when people will put him down and say, ah, you were nothing. You didn't He'll say, no, what? what do you mean I'm nothing? I'm laying the groundwork and the foundation. My son's the one that's going to build it, but I'm still a part of it. And in fact, it even says... There's a Midrash, famous Midrash, that when Shlomo HaMelech wanted to open the doors of the Beit HaMikdash, they wouldn't open. It's very famous. You might have heard it. It wouldn't open. And every time he tried to go in, he would say, you know, Se'u Sharim Rashechim, the Mizmor that we read on, on, on for Tfilata Parnassah, on, um, on uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You know, open the gates, open, open, and they wouldn't open. And then finally, Shlomo HaMelech said, and, and it, that's why it says, Mize Melech HaKavod. Who is the king of glory? Meaning, Shlomo, you think you're the king of glory? You think you're so great? That's why you're saying, Viavu Melech HaKavod. Because Shlomo HaMelech kept saying, let the, the honorable king come through. Really, he meant the divine presence, the Shekhinah. But it sounded like he was saying, open up the doors of the Beit HaMikdash so I can come through. I'm the big king. I'm the big shak. Melech HaKavod, the king of glory. So that's why it says, Miuz Melech HaKavod. And it says, Hashem is the Melech HaKavod Selah. That's why it says that at the end, that Hashem is the king of glory. But it says that the, the gates wouldn't open of the Beit HaMikdash until finally Shlomo HaMelech said, Bavur David Avdecha, Al Tashev B'nei Mishichecha, which is another thing that we say when we're selling, uh, when we're selling honors on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but I don't think it's because everybody learned this story. Maybe, 
But the, then, meaning as soon as he mentioned David HaMelech, the doors opened. Why? To show that this is the fulfillment of what David really wanted to do. It's called Beit David. Really, it's attributed to David. The Beit HaMikdash is attributed to, to David. Even though Shlomo HaMelech is the one who built it. And it says in, in Devray Yamim, the book Devray Yamim, that they followed exactly the plan that was given to them by David HaMelech, that he had worked out everything. David worked out even the divisions of the Levi'im, who would work on which weeks, and which Kohanim would work on which weeks, and all of that. He set up everything that he could, except actually building it. So really it was like the realization of his dream. So in the same way, Avram Avinu recognizes, I might be, my physical existence is temporary, it's only a few years. Even 175 years is only a short time. Think about it. Okay, it's a short time. When you look back and you think at, uh, and you think in terms of uh, the history of mankind, forget about the history of the universe, but the history of mankind, even how small a person, one person's life is. Okay, so Avraham Avinu realizes I have a very short life, but my existence, the significance of your existence, goes beyond what you're physically able to achieve because you set things in motion that are greater than yourself. So even though Avraham Avinu never got to see Yitzhak Mitzrayim, he never got to see the coming into the land of Israel of his great-great-great-great-grandchildren, he never got to see the building of the Beit HaMikdash, but he knew that that was what he was bringing about through what he was doing. And so it is a reward to him that those things are achieved because that's what he worked for. That was what he invested in. That was what he devoted himself to that cause. And knowing that your actions are going, to be, are going to eventuate in such an amazing outcome that there's going to be a nation that is mamlechet koanim v'goy kadosh, a holy nation is going to come from you and they're going to live in Eretz Yisrael and they're going to build a Beit HaMikdash and all that he knew, that made his life meaningful, knowing that. So even though David couldn't do what he wanted to do physically in reality, meaning in the, in the reality of now, he, knowing that he was playing a part in it and that would, would eventually happen was a source of great inspiration to him and that was his response to people that my existence is through the next generation I'm setting the, 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 the groundwork for the next generation and the, the rabbis in the Talmud sometimes use that, that saying they say they left the next generation room to make something of themselves I mean, they didn't answer every question the rabbis of the previous generation they, they left certain questions unresolved they left certain issues unresolved because they wanted the next generation to have something to work on and make their mark they didn't want to take all of the credit you know so that's, that's I think one of the ideas here and I was thinking about it in the context obviously of you know everything that's going on now that w- people get very caught up in the particular like we said in the beginning you know again, about the particular outcome of, of an election or or the political process, and we do the best that we can. You know, we, we do our research and we, we, we try to make the best choice in terms of candidate that we, we vote for. And, and obviously there are many factors that we weigh in making that decision. And we live in a state where usually it goes one way or the other in an election, depending on what state you live in anyway. So your, your individual decision might not have the same impact that you would wish that it did. Um, depending on where you live and who you vote for. But the idea is that that's a very small, that's why I was saying before, you know, you have to realize that we've lived through, the Jewish people have survived many different presidential administrations and we've lived through many different political circumstances and economic circumstances and all of that. 
and there's small blips on the screen also. And the bigger picture of what we're accomplishing is much more important. And knowing that we are, that, that God's plan is ultimately, whatever we wanted to accomplish in the election, whether it happens or not, whatever you wanted to be the outcome, if Hashem didn't build it, then Shav Amru Bonavbo, then the people who tried to go another way are doing it for nothing. It wasn't, it wasn't the plan. It wasn't the design. And that means that in the long term, whatever the outcome is, is part of a plan greater than the one that we can envision that we could see. We did our best to pursue what we thought was the best. And other people had a different idea. And ultimately, Hashem is the one who is steering the ship. So we don't have to worry. That's, and that's what it's really saying in the Mizmor. You don't have to worry that the house didn't get built the way that you wanted it to get built. Or that the thing that you were protecting didn't end up being protected. You did the best that you could. You pursued the goal that you thought was right. And Hashem had a different plan. And that means that there is a design here and a scheme here that is much bigger than we can see. And our existence in the next four years, whoever the president might be, is definitely not the total story of our lives and, and even less so the story of the Jewish people and even less so the story of humanity. It's just a few years. What's ultimately of significance is what we accomplish and like I said, what the, who the president is or isn't has very little impact on your daily life except for an immediate either happiness or sadness depending on who you want to win. Right? But at the end, when you, when, when you think about what's really important in life, it's, a very, it's very insignificant. And in the context of God's plan ultimately for your life, it's even less significant. And in the context of God's plan for the Jewish people, it's tiny significance. And in the context of God's plan for the entire humanity, it is so in so little significance. It's like a grain of sand on the beach. I mean, it's like nothing. So keeping that perspective and realizing there's a scheme and a plan much bigger than any of us is a very healthy way of looking at things and recognizing that what we do right now is it's not about the results that we see right now always. It's not about the outcome that we wanted coming to fruition right now. A lot of times it's about the seeds that we're planting for the future and the arrows that we're shooting ahead into, you know, into years from now, into generations from now, and the groundwork that we're laying for uh, people that we might not even know that will have an influence on. Uh, imagine the people who wrote great classic works of Torah thousand years ago. 2,000 years ago that we're learning from. Right? And they're still having an effect on us today. Rabbis that never would have known us, writers that never would know we existed, we would never get to meet them in person, but they're having an impact on Judaism now. That's really what I think he's trying to say, that you have to think in the big picture, not only in terms of the big picture right now, but even in terms of the future is really the impact that we're having. And not to get too caught up in the immediate frustrations of things in life not going exactly the way that we wanted them to go because there is a much bigger picture uh, at play. And so if we can keep that perspective, I think you can absorb any of the ups and downs of life. You don't get too overwhelmed with the ups or the downs. Both can be bad. Because if you get too caught up in the ups, you also lose perspective. If you get too caught up in the downs, you definitely lose perspective. But if you realize that there's a plan greater than you, and a future much longer than you can even really imagine that you're contributing to with your actions and the decisions you're making, then you realize that your capacity 
to really make a difference goes so far beyond this little frustration that you're having right now. Or so far, your, your capacity to achieve goes so far beyond the small joy that you're having right now also that can be a distraction. In fact, it says, one of the Midrashim says that why did Hashem, in this week's parasha, why did Hashem make Avram Avinu do the Akedah? Because it says the Satan said to Hashem, you know, I see that Avraham Avinu is having a very good time at his party, celebrating that Yitzchak has uh, reached age of, he stopped nursing, which, which back then was like three, four years old, maybe older. He reached a certain, pla- a certain milestone in his development. And I saw that he had a very big party, but I didn't see him bringing any sacrifices to you, Hashem. I didn't see him, you know, uh, doing anything religious. He was just celebrating. And so Hashem said, if I ask him to sacrifice that son, he'll do it. And so then he told him to do the Akedah. So what's the lesson there? The idea is that even Abraham Avinu could get caught up in the moment of celebrating that he had a child and how happy he was about that and forgetting for a second what the bigger significance of that is, what the bigger impact of that is. It's so much more important than the momentary. And when you guys have kids, You'll have to think about this because it's really a challenge. When you're dealing with your kids and they're frustrating, or if you're ever a teacher and you're teaching somebody and they're frustrating, just try to keep in mind how many teachers you had that said or did something that stayed with you for the rest of your life, good or bad. Hopefully good, but sometimes bad. We all had both, right? We all probably had both. Something that a teacher said to us that we still remember that hurt us and made us feel bad and down. And something that a teacher said to us that had an impact on us and made us feel good. And the same with the parents. We get frustrated in the moment, but we all should remember things our parents said and did that really like made us sad or really took the wind out of our sails and other things that they said that really picked, up, picked us up and lifted us up. And try to be the good side of that to the people that we have an influence over because you really affect other people's whole lives sometimes there are things people said to me in the past in my life that I'm sure they forgot and they wouldn't even remember if I mentioned it to them now that might have stuck with me for my, the rest of my life not necessarily saying a bad thing just a, an idea or an observation that struck me at a certain time that I couldn't unthink it I couldn't unsee it you know, so you really have the ability to make such a difference and if you think beyond yourself and beyond the moment. But it's so easy to get caught up in that moment and just to be absorbed in the frustrations of that moment. So let's think about our ability to rise above that and make a difference for the larger sphere that we exist in and for the longer term that we exist in. I think that's really what the message is and it's a great message. And I wanted to do also the more before that, which is also famous one that the Ashkenazim read before they do Birkat HaMazon, the Beshuv Hashem et Shivat Zion. Maybe we'll do it next time. It has some similar overlapping themes, which is why I thought we would do it together uh, with the, with the uh, Kuf Kamsayim, but maybe we'll save it for next time. But I think it's just something to think about, especially when you hear people getting caught up in these election results, whatever their reaction is. We don't even know what the outcome is, but whatever it is and whatever the reaction is, we should keep perspective. The things are temporary, and what really is important, what really is significant, not to get caught up in the moment, but to use the moment as an opportunity to see beyond the moment and to see something larger than the moment. That's the challenge of being a Jew all the time. 
and uh, and that's something that we have to take upon ourselves. Okay, so Bezvat Hashem will continue next week, and uh, we will, I guess.